Good to see you this morning. My name is Dave. If you're new with us, uh, welcome. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, last week, we launched into a new series that we're walking through in the book of Ruth, and we're calling it Loss, Love, and Legacy, like sands through the hourglass. So go the days of Ruth or something like that. But uh, it's appropriately titled because last week as we got into the first act, the story of Ruth, we definitely experienced some loss. There is, uh, we learn, a famine in the land in Judah and Bethlehem, the house of bread. And so Elimelech, who is the head of this family, takes his wife and his two sons and moves them to the land of Moab. And in the story, the way the author writes it, this is not just a physical move. It's also a theological move. It's a move away from trusting God, and it's a move towards trusting self. And and Elimelech is now relying on his own strength. And the impact of this move, as the story continues, is devastating. Elimelech himself dies, which is pretty bad. Uh, His two boys marry Moabite women, and then after a, a decade, both the sons also die, leaving Naomi with no sons and no husband, living in a foreign land um, with her two daughter and daughters-in-law. So as the story moves forward, when Naomi gets word that God is on the move, that things are improving back home, she grabs the two girls and they set off for Bethlehem. But it becomes fairly apparent that throughout all the devastation and tragedy, Naomi has lost hope. She's lost her confidence in God. And so she tells the two girls about halfway back, you know, go back to Moab because I do not believe that God can and will provide for you in Israel. In Ruth chapter 1 verse 12, she says it this way. She says, return home, my daughters, even if I thought there was still hope. Like even even if things turned out as, as good as they possibly could turn out, I don't think it's a good idea for you to come back with me. Even if I thought there was still hope. And there are several words, this is interesting, there are several words in the Hebrew language for hope. This one, the one the author uses here, is the word tikva. Say tikva. You know Hebrew now. Um, it comes from a word that actually means accord. And tikva is a way of saying there's just a little hope. There's just a cord. There's just a thread. There's just a thin strand of a chance that things are going to be okay. Maybe you've talked to someone who's facing some tough stuff in their life and you said, how are you doing? Maybe their response was, I'm just hanging on by a thread. Not a lot of hope. Not a ton of confidence that things are going to be okay. That's tikva. That's just a cord of hope. And what Naomi is saying in chapter 1, last week in Act 1, she was saying, I don't even have tikva. I don't even have a cord. There's not even a thread of hope in me that things are going to work out. So why don't you girls just go back to Moab? And one of the daughters does. But the other daughter, Ruth, says, no, I'm in. I'm with you. I trust God and I am holding on to tikva. I am holding on to a cord and a thread of hope that God is going to make things right for us again. And at the end of chapter one, we get a clue that perhaps Ruth is right because just as they arrive in Bethlehem, 
The barley harvest is beginning. That is the end of Act 1 in the book of Ruth. And we talked a little bit about how the harvest in ancient Israel was a symbol of the Lord's provision, a symbol of promise and hope. The harvest is like a physical statement that says God is going to come through for his people. And that's what Act 2 of our story Ruth chapter 2, you can go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn there. That's what Act 2 of our story is all about. It begins as the barley harvest was beginning, and then it ends. The final verse of chapter 2 is, the barley and wheat harvests were finished. So this is the harvest chapter. This is the act in the play where we learn about and discover how these two women will find hope in the midst of tragedy. Ruth. Lost Love and Legacy, Act 2, and the curtains part. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. In the opening verse, we are introduced to the main character of this act, In the story, a man named Boaz, we're told that he's a man of standing. That word standing can be translated a number of ways. It can be translated wealth or prominence or influence or importance. It is used throughout the Bible to describe men of war, warriors were described with this word. To use kind of a contemporary slang, we in our day would say, Boaz is the man. If Boaz was an NBA basketball player, he would not currently be on the Portland Trailblazers. <laughs> He'd probably be Anthony Davis, unfortunately, right, Tom? So, so sad. So depressed. Really bummed. <laughs> Swept, really? Ah, oh, come on. Anyway, that's another sermon on failure um, <laughs> and how to deal with it appropriately. And no hope, yes. The name Boaz, I told you last week, names play a big part of this story, right? The author uses names to sort of push us along and develop the plot as this story unfolds. The name Boaz means, in him is strength. In him is strength. You see, this guy is the picture of stability, He's a picture of of wealth and success and power and privilege and social standing. Boaz is the man. That's character number one, our main character today, Boaz. Verse two. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. Friends, this is, in the opening verses, a contrasting picture of two different people. First we have Boaz, this man of standing, this picture of stability and wealth and success and status. And then we have these two ladies. And what we find here in verses 2 and 3 is a very clear description of Israel's welfare system. See, Ruth and Naomi, they've arrived in Bethlehem and they have... Nothing. They're two widows with no husbands to provide for them, no way to make a living. And so they look for hope 
in the system of grace and provision that God has set up amongst his people. And here's where that system comes from. It's written right into the law. This is Leviticus chapter 23. This is God's law for his people. He says to landowners, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the alien. So here's how it would work if you were a landowner. You would harvest your field, but you would not harvest the entire thing. You would leave the edges and you would leave the corners unharvested. Also, when your, uh, your harvesters would go through and they were, they were picking the grain or the wheat and they were harvesting it, anything that fell to the ground, they would leave there. They wouldn't go back and sort of wipe it clean. In other words, God says, I want you to intentionally leave the scraps for the poor. I want you to intentionally not maximize all of your profits for yourself. In other words, you're not trying to like squeeze every single dollar, every single cent out of this moment. You are intentionally leaving some behind for those less fortunate than you. And again, this was Israel's welfare system. This was the way that the poor and the widow and the orphan and the alien would be cared for in the society. And just to give you kind of a modern equivalent, I read something this week that really helped me get a sense and a feel for who Ruth and Naomi were in this culture. And I read this quote from a guy named Robert L. Hubbard. He says this in his commentary on Ruth. The gleaning of fallen grain was mere subsistence living, much like trying to eke out survival today by recycling aluminum cans. Now you think about people in our world, people that you've seen who go trash can to trash can through the city, digging down to the bottom and pulling out every single aluminum can they can find. Think about who they are. Think about how they're regarded in our world. Think about how much time you spend with them. Think about what you think about them and their story. And now you have just a little bit of an idea of who Ruth and Naomi are as we get into this story. You, now you understand their place in this world, their place in this society. By the way, it was a very shameful thing to make your living in this way. If you had finally gotten so low, if you'd, if you'd sunk so far down that you had to go and pick up the scraps that were left behind in the fields, it was a very, very shame-producing thing. And so these two women are as about as low as you can possibly go in this society. As it turned out, she, that's Ruth, was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. As the story unfolds, I, I told you here that the author frequently kind of weaves in some irony. There's, a, there's some tongue-in-cheek writing happening throughout this story. And we see it here primarily in two key phrases. Uh, the first one is the phrase, as it turned out. And the other one is the phrase, just then. And what the author is doing here is sort of making fun of the idea that the events of this story, that the events of life really, are merely the result of luck and coincidence. 
You can kind of have to read the tone into it. As it turned out, wink, wink, right? Just then, like, what are the chances? Imagine that. And the author is making the very significant point that what is happening is actually not just happenstance. That life is not just a string of random events. That behind it all is a God at work orchestrating his grand story. As it turned out, just then should be replaced with, and of course, because of God's sovereignty and according to his will. Right in the middle of all this tragedy and struggle and shame, God is doing something here that not even Ruth or Naomi can yet see. And friends, this is such a subtle thing, and yet it is so significant, significant because at some point in your life, things are going to get hard. Maybe they already have. Maybe they are right now. But I'll promise you this today. It will happen again. Hardship is coming again for every single person in this room in some shape or form. And at some point, friends, when tragedy strikes and hurt and pain and suffering seem like they are winning the day, in that moment, the Bible says you must cling to the fact that God is at work in ways you cannot see and don't understand. The Bible says it's going to be hard. There's going to be doubts and fears and questions and concerns. But hold on. Hold on with your fingernails to the fact that God is behind the scenes working in ways that you cannot know. God is always at work behind the scenes. Friends, where do you need to plant that truth firmly in your life today? Where do you need to be reminded this morning that you are not alone? No matter what you see or feel or what you're experiencing in life right now or in, this, in the future, the Bible says you are not alone. There's a bigger story a story playing out in ways you can't even fully imagine. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Now, this is a point in the story that we often just read past, think, wow, Boaz is kind of a friendly guy, right? But the first century readers of this story would have noticed something very specific here. They would have known that in Numbers chapter 6, a priest is instructed to come into the tabernacle and announce a blessing on the people, and then the people would respond with a blessing back to the priest in return. And in this scene, when we first meet Boaz, we see him functioning like a priest. He walks into his business, into his fields with his employees, and he announces blessing on them. In other words, the first experience we have with Boaz in this story tells us that he has turned his business into his ministry. It's the kind of man he is. His business is also his ministry. He is the kind of person who seeks to infuse godly living into every single part of his life. Can I talk to you today if you're someone who has money or power or influence, or standing in the corporate world? Can I speak right at you this morning? Can I tell you, 
and challenge you to use what God has given you to offer hope to a world that desperately needs it? Can I challenge you to to bless those who God has put under you? Can I remind you that in the Bible there is no such thing as sacred and secular, but that the kingdom of God longs to work its way into every single nook and cranny of our lives? You know, sometimes in the church, uh, we use language that is unhelpful. Sometimes in the church, we'll talk about people who are in full-time ministry. I remember when I decided to kind of lay down my pursuit of becoming an engineer, which was hard because it was halfway through my senior year of college, and that physics and math degree did not come easy. But I remember when I decided to sort of lay down the idea that I was going to be an engineer and I was going to enter into full-time ministry. I have to tell you that language is just flat out wrong. But it's also right. (laughs) Because I am in full-time ministry here at the church, But you're in full-time ministry as well. At Nike or Intel or Columbia or at the school where you teach or in your home. You're in full-time ministry with your neighbors and your family and your coworkers and your parents and the parents of your kids' friends who you see at their softball games. Friends, you see, we are just starting to get a picture here of the kind of man that Boaz is and the picture we get is the picture of him at work. This is who Boaz is at work. This is not church. This is not his small group. This is not a religious gathering. He has made his business, his ministry. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. Kind of quick extra side note here that's not in my notes. Who typically in the ancient world was charged with fetching the water? Yeah, I remember the story of the woman at the well. She's a great example of the women were in charge of going and fetching the water for the men. But what does Boaz do here? He flips it all around. He flips the system around and he says, you are so important. You have so much value that these guys, they're getting water for you, honey. Right? Say amen, ladies. Oh, wow. They really liked that. Um, How about sermon later on being power hungry? No, I'm kidding. Um, But the main thing we want to see in this section is this. It's the contrast between how the hired hands describe Ruth and then how Boaz addresses her. You see, to them, Ruth is just a Moabite. What do they say? They say she's a Moabite. She is the Moabite who came back from Moab. Who's that? She's the Moabite who came back from Moab. Any, any doubt what they think of her or what her main identity is in their minds? She's the Moabite who came back from Moab. But what does Boaz say? Boaz says, he calls her what? My daughter. Now, some scholars say this may be an indication that Boaz is older. He may be. But I think there's actually something more 
going on here, something deeper in this story. I think, in contrast to how the world sees Ruth, what we learn in this moment is that Boaz sees Ruth as God sees Ruth. Boaz, instead of treating her the way the rest of the world treats her, Boaz treats her with honor. Boaz treats her with value. He treats her with dignity. Not like a victim, not like some woman from Moab, not like some person who I could use for my own sake, not a project of do-gooding to help me feel better about myself. No, when Boaz says, my daughter, he's giving dignity back to Ruth. Friends, can I just say that I think God is calling us to give dignity back to people in the way we serve them? That we must always remember that the people we serve and help deserve their dignity to be preserved. I remember when I was a youth pastor, I was at a youth pastor's conference. I was in my early 20s. I was just getting into ministry. It was early November. I'm at this conference and Tony Campolo was the speaker. And he's addressing this entire auditorium, probably like three times the size of this room, filled with youth pastors. It was an active crew. We'll just say that. And uh, I remember Tony talking about this very thing. And he says, you know, this Thanksgiving, when your youth group delivers turkeys to families in need, don't do it as a group. Don't go ring the doorbell and present the meal and get pictures with the family. No, he said. This is the perfect opportunity to play ding-dong ditch for Jesus. Put the food down on the mat, ring the doorbell, and get the heck out of Dodge. And he might not have said heck because he's Tony Campolo and you never know. Yeah. See, friends, we must learn to be like Boaz. We must always seek to offer and restore and preserve the dignity of those who have less power and position and privilege than we do. Why? Because they are just like us. And in God's eyes, they are nothing less than daughters and sons of the king. No matter what life has brought their way, no matter what even choices they have made. We must be so careful to preserve the dignity of those we serve. At this, verse 10, Ruth bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? You see, friends, at this point, Boaz sees more in Ruth than Ruth even sees in herself. Ruth has been told so many times that she is just a widow, just a Moabite, just a woman who has no value, that maybe, just maybe, she has begun to believe it. But Boaz, he walks into her life and he says, no, there is more to you than this world says. Ever had a Boaz in your life? Ever had someone, maybe at just the right moment or in just the right way, look deep into your heart and say, I see something in you. There's something great in you. There's something good in you. You matter. You're important. You have value and significance. I remember Mrs. Larson, my fifth grade teacher, the second time I went through fifth grade, she told me I was smart. I didn't feel smart. 
that time in my life. But Mrs. Larson believed in me and she told me I was smart. And I got straight A's that year. Who'd have thought? I remember Bill Hill. He was a retired high school basketball coach who worked at the youth center on base. And I remember the hours he would spend with me. I remember that he told me that he thought I had potential, that he thought I could play college basketball someday. I remember Glenn Harless, the pastor of my home church, who pulled me aside one evening in a season when I was not particularly walking very closely with the Lord. And he said, David, God could use you. I see something in you. I think maybe, just maybe, you could be a pastor. Ever had a Boaz in your life? Ever felt the power of someone seeing you? Seeing things in you? Seeing things in you perhaps you could not even yet see in yourself? Or maybe a better question this morning is this. Who in your life needs you to be a Boaz to them. Needs you to speak encouragement. Needs you to offer truth. Speak life. Share hope. Needs you to say, I see you. I see you in a way the world doesn't see you. I see potential in you. I see goodness in you. I see greatness in you. I see God's stuff deep in your heart and soul. Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant though I do not have the standing of even one of your servants. Friends, this section will preach. I mean, I could spend our entire morning on just these four verses right here. Someone should write a speech about these verses because do you see what Boaz says here? He judges Ruth not by the color of her skin, but by the content of her character. I guess someone did write a speech about that. He says, when other people look at you, they might just see a Moabite or a widow or a childless woman, but I see the character of your life. I see what's happening on the inside. I see the way you have faithfully stood by and cared for your mother-in-law. I see the way you have chosen the path of uncertainty, the path of risk and trust so that you could follow God. You see, over and over and over again in this story, Boaz teaches us something that is so very important for us to learn. And that's this. What it looks like to be a person who lives for God when you are on top. What it means to be a person who exemplifies the kingdom of heaven from the place of power and privilege and status. And from that place, Boaz offers Ruth dignity, and he gives her opportunity, and he offers protection for this woman, a safe place for Ruth to heal and grow and thrive and be the person that God longs for her to be. Go back with me real quick to verse 9. We have to read this verse. It is so huge because we all read right over it, or maybe you didn't. Do you notice what Boaz, Boaz says in verse 9? He makes this statement to Ruth. He says, 
I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. Why? Why does he have to say that? Why does Boaz have to give specific instruction to his men not to lay a hand on Ruth? I'll tell you why. Because this was a culture where that kind of thing was likely to happen. This is the day of the judges. This is the day when corruption and evil and immorality ran rampant, especially amongst people of power. This was the kind of culture where a foreign single woman, where foreign uh, single women were not treated with value and respect. They were treated with disregard. And part of what Boaz models for us here is something that Jesus talked about and demonstrated time and time and time again, and that's this. In the kingdom of God, the powerful stand up for the powerless. In the kingdom of God, the privileged sacrifice for the underprivileged. In the kingdom of God, those with status and influence and social standing use their resources, their position, not just for selfish advancement, but for the good of the less fortunate in this world. I was hoping for a bigger amen there, church. You see, that's not the world we live in. That's not the kingdom of our society. But it is the kingdom of God, friends. It is the kingdom that Jesus came to usher in. It is the kingdom that you and I long to live into and be a part of. It is the Jesus way of life. I would venture to say this, friends. Many of us in this room this morning are a lot more like Boaz than we are like Ruth. We are the privileged, the powerful, the successful, the wealthy, the people of this world who are the haves. And we don't always think of ourselves this way, but the truth of it is this, that is exactly who most of us are. And the question that this story begs us to ask and answer is this, what will we do with all that we've been given? Will we live for God? Will we serve his kingdom? Or will we just use our status and position and wealth and resources for us? At mealtime, Boaz said to her, to Ruth, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain, not just the plain scraps of raw grain, some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, that's the the not yet harvested area of of the field, do not embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and do not rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. She also brought her leftovers home from dinner. Friends, this is the first historical and biblical example of the restaurant to-go box. Scripture says it is a good and righteous thing when you don't finish your meal at a restaurant to put it in one of those little white boxes and bring it home. And then we notice, we notice what Ruth does with her leftovers. She brings it home and what does she do? 
She shares it with her family. I bring this up because maybe, just maybe, there's a person in my family who does not like to share her, ref- her leftovers with her husband. And I want to declare today publicly that that is unbiblical. Looking for some repentance there. No, in all seriousness, this is the part of the story that is really about the lavish provision of our God. How he longs to offer us more than we can even sometimes imagine or even hope for. And friends, just so we're clear, do you know that's God's heart? Do you know that's God's nature, that he loves to pour out his blessing on you? I am not talking here about prosperity theology, that if you believe in God, everything will be rosy and he will give you all the dreams of your life. I'm not talking about that, but I am saying that when you do have blessing, that when you do have resources, that when God provides for you, he loves to watch his children enjoy this world that he has created for us. It is not a sin to enjoy this world, to enjoy your life, to enjoy your resources, and to even have fun. God's not up there going like, that's enough fun, back to work right? He loves it when his children flourish. You know, I did some, a little bit of research this week. Did you know that in this world that God created and that we live in, there are over 60,000 different species of trees? Actually, scientists say there's between 60 and 100,000. So 60 is like the conservative side of that number. 60,000 different trees. Now imagine God at creation, like those stinking humans. I'll just make him one tree, or maybe three or four, five. Five's plenty, right? Is that the heart of our God? No, he says, man, I'm just going to open the floodgates. How about 60,000? How about 70,000 different kinds of even just trees for them to enjoy? And I'll put 49,000 of them in Oregon. Let's do it. Because I love the Oregons more than anyone else. Friends, do you know that there are more than 500 different types of banana? You can eat a different kind of banana every single day of the year because God is so lavish and he pours out his blessings on us so fully. Scientists estimate that when you count the various shades of light and dark, There are how many different kinds of colors? Let's test your brains right now. Turn to a neighbor and guess how many different kinds of color do scientists estimate are are like in our world? Turn and guess. Take a guess. How many colors? Scientists best estimate that there are over 10 million different variations of color in our world did Crayola rip us off or what I got like the big like you know supreme pack and they didn't even come close friends all this is to say is that we have a lavish God who loves and enjoys pouring out blessing on his children and he's pouring out his blessings right here on Ruth and Naomi remember when we started this chapter Remember when this act sort of began and the curtains parted and we started act two? We began with Ruth just hoping that maybe she would just be able to find a field, just one field where they might 
let her glean, if just for a little while. All she wanted was just a place where she would be allowed to pick up leftovers. That was her goal that day. That's what what success in her mind was. Just let me pick up scraps in some field somewhere for a little bit. Maybe enough for one meal. Maybe enough for two. Maybe enough for, for mom and I today. But at the end of this act, Ruth ends up with the owner of a field, not only allowing her to stay, but inviting her for a meal allowing her to eat all she can, giving her leftovers to take home, and now they're going to make her future gleaning, her future way of life a whole lot easier. Friends, this is like if you were flying standby, you missed your flight, you got caught in traffic, you really needed to get out on this flight, but you missed the flight, and now you're looking for another flight out, and there are lines in the airport, everyone's there, and you're saying, please, 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 can I get on the next flight? And the attendant's saying, doesn't look good. I mean, maybe I'll get you on one today, probably in the morning. And you're just like, oh, I have to get on a flight. Just any seat will do. I'll take the center seat, the one that's against the back wall by the bathrooms that doesn't recline with that nasty airplane restroom smell hovering all over. That would be amazing. Even put me there. And then the, the, uh, the uh, flight attendant calls you up to the desk and says, we got you on the flight. I got you in the seat. And by the way, you're flying first class. We were just putting you in first class. How many here have ever flown first class? Be honest. I knew you guys were a bunch of Boazes. See? (laughs) They said, we're putting you in first class in those seats that don't just recline four inches, but they recline all the way back, and they bring you drinks and fresh-baked cookies and that nice, hot, like, washcloth to wipe your face with. I mean, what? At home, you can do that anytime you want. You just get a washcloth out the drawer and... Put hot water on it. Wipe your face. It's not a big deal, right? But when you're on a plane, oh, that's like the greatest. It's amazing. See, that's Ruth. She's just hoping to get on the flight, and all of a sudden she finds herself sitting first class. That's the lavish provision of our God in the story. And the message for us, friends, the message for you and me real clearly is this. When you find hope in God, when you find your hope in the fact that God is writing his story, When you find your hope in God's strength and grace and provision, it's more abundant than you can even imagine. Because God will not just meet your expectations. He's not looking for the lowest common denominator. He will blow your expectations out of the water. And here's the deal. For Ruth, for Naomi, they feel like they've hit the jackpot. But the truth is this. It's just the tip of the iceberg for what God has in store for them. And in the rest of this chapter, I'm going to let you finish it up and read it on your own this week. Go ahead, I'm serious. Finish reading Ruth 2 this week. That's your homework. And then keep going and read Ruth 3 in preparation for next week. But in the rest of this chapter, Ruth goes home and she recounts all that happened that day to Naomi. And then Naomi realizes that not only is Boaz this kind, upstanding man but he's also a relative, a man who could potentially be a match for Ruth, a guy who she might just have the opportunity to marry. And, and Naomi speaks these words to Ruth. Listen to them. The Lord bless him, she said. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. That man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers or kinsmen redeemers, if you have the old translation. 
And if you want to hear something cool, this is, I thought, cool. I have studied the book of Ruth a number of times, and this right here was a new revelation to me this week. In the Hebrew, the original language of the story, the he, the he in the sentence, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. The he in Hebrew is ambiguous. In other words, when you read it in the original text, it's not clear as to whether Naomi is talking about Boaz or God. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Who? Who has not stopped showing his kindness? Boaz or God? Which is it? Yes, in the words of Carl Palmer, yes, yes, both, because that, friends, is how our God so often chooses to work, and that is another message all throughout this story. God does his work in this world, and he often decides to do it through his image bearers, through his followers. And this woman, Naomi, the one who was so bitter at the end of chapter one that she said, don't even call me Naomi. Don't even call me lovely or pleasant. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. This woman who saw her life and situation is so helpless that she said, the Almighty has made my life very bitter. That's how down she was. That's how low she was. That's how without hope she was. Now, suddenly at the end of act two, even Naomi is starting to look up. She's starting to find hope. She's starting to experience the reality that God is still at work in her story. And next week, friends, as we open Act 3, we're going to discover what God can do in a life that has even just a little bit of hope. Just a tikva of hope is all it takes. And our God, will discover, can take that little hope and do amazing things. But that's next week. This week, we're going to conclude our time together by remembering and declaring where our hope as followers of Jesus Christ is found. This morning, we're going to come to the table and we're going to receive the bread and the cup the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we're gonna to declare to our hearts, to each other and to our God, no matter what the circumstances of life, our hope is secure in the fact that our God loved us so much that he paid the penalty for our sins and won the victory over sin and death by rising, raising to new life on the third day and defeating the grave. And so friends, this morning, no matter where you are in life, no matter what, circumstances may tell you bring your circumstances to the table and let the power and the hope of the cross define your outlook as we leave here amen